Hey, do you want to be like me and make podcasts that everyone loves? Yeah, you do. But chances are, you don't want to spend a bunch of money doing it. No worries. A solution exists. Spotify's got a platform that lets you make podcasts super easy, then distribute those podcasts everywhere, and you can even earn money doing it. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Also, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. I'm speaking from experience when I say that all those additional features like video podcasts, Q&As, polls, those are things you won't find for cheap elsewhere. But with Spotify for podcasters, it's all totally free no catch. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Thanks. We love you. Everybody. Welcome to Pretty Scary. Andy, this is the part where you say pretty scary boo. Pretty scary boo. I I I've been I've been practicing. Thank you. Pretty pretty scary boo. Yeah. I would argue you nailed it. Thank you. So congrats. We don't need to do like a few more options. I can I can try it different if you want. I but I, I also I mean, don't want to take all day here if we if we if we have other stuff to get to. If you want to give me one more take. Sure. Okay. Pretty scary. Boo. Okay. That, that, I think it was worth it. I think. Yeah? Oh, perfect. Yeah, I That's what that, I like to hear. Thanks. I think, yeah, that second take being in there also is really going to add something to it. I'm not going to edit <laughs> either of them out. That would be stupid. Hey, everybody. That's Andy Sell. He's my guest co-host this week. Andy is also my co-host on You Don't Even Like This Band, a podcast that is currently about Fleetwood Mac, who you should actually like. I don't. I don't know why yeah. you wouldn't like Fleetwood Mac, you fucking maniacs. <laughs> yeah, I think for some of the bands we've covered, the title makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Less so for this one. Agreed. And for Limp Biscuit. Yeah. So we are talking about a documentary this week. A, a documentary that we apparently kind of disagree on. It's <laughs> called Amber, the Girl Behind the Alert. 2023 documentary currently available on Peacock. I have Hulu in the notes, but nope, it is a Peacock original. And as the title implies, it's about the girl whose murder was the impetus for the development of the Amber Alert system. And Do you think there's anybody that can't put that together from the title? Probably. Nope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Me and my wife have this talk all the time. Like she's got a lot of faith in humanity in that. She she feels like there aren't really that many truly stupid people out there. And I think it's mm. the exact opposite. Yeah. I bet this title flew over a whole bunch of heads. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. I would argue this is one of the, the better true crime documentaries out there, at least among the stuff that's been released recently. Wh what was your big overall thoughts on I, it? Well, I can't – I guess I, you're probably right there. I can't really speak to that because I don't watch a ton of this kind of stuff. I will say I, I think you liked it better than I did because I think that I was kind of disappointed considering some of the – like the the access they had, the the footage they had, um, I was at parts like it felt to me like a true crime formula in a lot of ways from what the stuff that I have seen, like See, the opening recap, the commercial break recaps, like the weird the music, right? But I think it by sticking to the true crime formula you're describing, which is I would argue a thing that barely exists anymore. 
I think that's what makes it stand out mm. from most true crime documentaries right now. For one thing, it's not six hours long, which <laughs> yeah. it absolutely could have been, but well, should not have been. That's Well, that's what I'm going to say, though, is that I think it could have afforded to be a little longer than an hour and a half, considering some of the stuff that, like, we'll get into it, but there's it focuses too much on one thing and too little on another, in my opinion. Yeah, we're actually going to get off into a bunch of stuff that I wish they would have covered yeah. more in the documentary. But at the same time, I almost considered doing this as two episodes because those feel like two different stories. And it's not, I would argue, appropriate to like, we can't pin the things that happened with the Amber Alert and all the legislation that came after it on the kid. Like, it's not our fault for getting fucking kidnapped. Yeah. And all of that, like, that's the stuff I wish they would have put more effort into, like the, the laws that sprung up around this. Yeah. But I also feel like it's a different story. Like, Yeah, that's fair. I guess I also just think we could have done for being called Amber. I also feel like they didn't do enough of who Amber was. You know, what I mean, it's. Well, she was nine. Like, yeah, that doesn't seem not, not prolific yet. Yeah, that, that's where I think we might disagree. Like, that's the stuff I want less of in a true crime documentary mm. these days. And you get way too much of it. Like, if this was an episodic thing, there would have been a full episode just about the yeah. family life leading up to this murder. And it's like, I get it, but I also don't get it. Like, she's a nine year old kid. I yeah. doubt it's I doubt I'm going to hear what her interests and activities were and be like, oh, shit, that's interesting. It's like she's yeah. just a kid. Yeah. Well, and also there's a there's an element of it's all we already know what's coming. So it's already going to hurt us to watch. You know what I yes. mean? Like there. And I will say that I do in a lot of ways admire the restraint that the filmmakers showed in in what they chose to show us. Regarding yes. like the footage that had been captured. But yeah, I, they're, they're just parts where I'm like, I'll bring them up. I'll bring up my concerns as they sure, come sure. so that I'm not like, well, item one, this <laughs> item two, this, you know, but I didn't dislike it. Yeah. So it covers the story of Amber Hagerman, who was a nine year old girl who was abducted while riding her bike on January 13th, 1996 in Arlington, Texas. And the first thing that really stands out to me about this documentary is the amount of footage they have of Amber and her family. And the reason they have all this footage is there was a documentary film crew following the family for five months before this incident happened. And they were following them for the most 90s reason possible, a documentary about women getting off welfare. Yep. They interview a woman named Pam Curry very extensively. She's a documentary producer for WFAA, which I'm assuming is a TV station in the Arlington area. And so like it. the amount of footage they have is crazy. And they even have that scene that people always talk about when there's an abduction or murder where they're like, well, she told me she was going to ride her bike to the store. And I said, goodbye. And that's the last time I saw her. They have that scene here. Like you see her yeah. and her brother riding off to, at least in her case, get kidnapped and murdered like 10 minutes later. It's harrowing. Yeah. I do like the amount of footage that they show of the kids having fun because there is there's an element of like, you know, it's sad. It's tragic as you're watching it. But it also is kind of nice to just see two kids being kids. Yes. You know, even in this context, there is there is a I don't know. I liked all that. It would make you think they don't need to do dramatizations, but there are some dramatizations. Yeah, there's not a lot, but there's a few. There's not a lot. Yeah, there's definitely a lot fewer than than most things. And I like that about it. Yeah. You know, this documentary. Yeah, it's very 90s. This idea of like women getting off of welfare and the little story behind like 
the producers how they wanted to do this thing, but were, were, it was difficult to find subjects that would be totally open with them. And they get into Donna Norris's story, uh, Amy's, uh, Amber, Jesus, Amber's <laughs> mother. Yeah, imagine screwing up that name. Um, and her story about her husband, and, and that's full of nuance, and it's complex, and the shelter she was staying at. And it also introduces the theme, this running theme of the cops don't help. Well, see, I feel like, yeah, I mean, the cops don't help a lot in the early moments, but I do feel like one of the other things that stands out about this documentary, and we'll talk about this part. Oh, well, I guess in a couple minutes here, but I feel like the police work is not as lazy as you normally see in a lot of true crime documentaries. Yeah. Well, you brought up her relationship with the husband, Mm -hmm. which that I think is another moment that in the wrong hands, that turns into a whole episode (laughs) and not just a whole episode, but one that I guarantee is would at least have the goal of like digging up extra dirt on that guy. So as you're watching it, you're like, oh, well, obviously he did it when the truth is obviously he did not, which makes... Their relationship, I hate to say it because, I mean, spousal abuse is a huge problem, but that's all completely irrelevant to this story. And I don't know that getting the gritty details of their relationship would have added anything to this. No, I mean, they do do the like sensationalist thing of like her saying, and then the drinking started and then there's like a percussion stinger and it shows his face, you know, there is stuff like that. But I guess... It feels more like old true crime stuff in that way, in that it's like they're not trying to get a bunch of episodes out of it. They are just kind of hitting the beats and moving on. And I would argue that their relationship has a lot to do with this story in the same way that like the weird politics of the decision to make a documentary like that in the first place come into play in that it creates this world of like, well, these are the people who are vulnerable, you know, women, single mothers with in abusive relationships, raising children alone, trying to like exist. Like, like it's almost like, yeah, these are the wealth. These are the women you want to kick off welfare Republicans. Like this is the world you've created where these people are vulnerable, not just to systems failing them, not just to abusive partners, but also to the evil that is going to befall them later. I think it's relevant in that way. But yeah, I do. I'm with you. I appreciate that it doesn't try to do this whole fucking thing with him. Yeah. And I feel like his friend would have gotten a full episode, too. Yeah. I guess we'll jump ahead a little bit here. But Richard, the father, Richard Hagerman, has this friend that they talk about. Mike Thompson. Mike Thompson. He, like, once this abduction happens... The witness sees it right away and calls it in. And the key detail that stands out, person was driving a black truck. Well, guess who else has a black truck? <laughs> Literally everybody in Texas. <laughs> Everyone in Texas, including Mike Thompson, family friend, yeah. very close to the family. And I feel like that's another thread that an episodic documentary version of this would have pulled on for a long, long time. Yeah. When the truth is... In his case also, the police eliminated him pretty definitively very quickly. Yeah. Because in the dad's case, he was on surveillance video at a storage facility. And in this guy's case, he used that truck to deliver auto parts. And whenever he would stop, there would be a timestamp. So he was like 30 minutes away when the crime happened. And it speaks to... A thing you hear all the time in bad true crime documentaries, which is, I don't believe in coincidences. There's no such thing as a coincidence. You get a shittier cop on this case, he's going to hone in on that black truck. Yeah. And they will not investigate anyone else. Well, I, I here's the thing is, I think that they got Mike Thompson and Richard both got very lucky in the sense that this is a case where there was documentary crew filming. There was a witness. There was a witness to the abduction. <laughs> yeah. Who called it in. So like the cops really didn't have a lot of leeway to be shitty here. Like, because there were, there was an entire community basically of witnesses and corroboration. So they couldn't really 
fucking pulling his shitty cop stuff. Yeah, I'm more than open to accepting that I might be giving these cops a little too much credit. <laughs> yeah. I'm never opposed I'll, to that idea. I'll, I'll always be here to push back any kind of, well, the cops are okay. <laughs> Yeah, if that's the case, that they were kind of forced into it because this was so high profile. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I was legitimately surprised that they eliminated those two so quick. That's not typical cop behavior. Yeah. And I think that at least one of the cops, I think it's what's his name? Simons. Mike Simons is the one that kind of strikes me as a little bit like mad about it. You know, like yeah. almost, it almost seems like he's like, man, I really mm, I wanted to put him in prison for this. Was he the short stumpy guy? <laughs> no, that's Ben Lopez. I think this is the older the older guy. Oh, sure. I don't know. A lot of, look, they're all cops. Yeah, they're all cops. they all look the same to me. <laughs> So this abduction happened on January 13th, 1996. Amber and her brother Ricky go off to ride their bikes. And again, you see that moment in the documentary. They even have a shot of the grandfather who ends up going to look for her, just like standing over her bike. Yeah. Like this documentary crew was following everything. Yeah, they were there in real time as, yeah, it's nuts. And so they, they rode off on their bikes, and then they're out of sight when the abduction happens. But they ride off, and her brother says they went to this parking lot that they weren't supposed to go to. And he got freaked out because he was young. He was like three or four, and he knew he was breaking the rules. Yeah. So he was like, I'm scared. I want to leave. And he heads back, and she's like, go ahead. I'll be right behind you. And oops. Dude. Instead of being right behind him, what happens is someone pulls up in a black pickup truck and just yanks her off her bike, throws her in the cab of the truck, and drives off. And there was a witness, though, a guy named Jimmy Kevill, which is a cool name. Yeah, they keep saying, I keep kept thinking they were saying Jimmy Kimmel at point. Like, <laughs> and he calls 911 and basically reports what happened. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ricky goes home and tells his grandfather where Amber is, and they get in his truck to go back and get her. So when the police pull up, the grandfather is there with Ricky, just like staring at her bike, like yeah. what happened. It happened that quick. Like that's yeah. it was it really seems like a crime of opportunity kind of thing. Well, and it's just it's still just wild to me how like, you know, a lot of times child abductions, right? There's nobody, nobody's paying attention. There's nobody knows for a little bit. Like it's just a, somebody disappears. And right. this is like, no, there was a witness that saw it. The grandfather immediately is there with Ricky. And it's all just like, and it's still, you know, even with all of these things in the, in the favor of an investigation, it's still like, no, you, it, 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 it's that, it's that quick and that simple. Yeah. Ricky's whole thing is devastating. Like that poor guy. I, I yeah. just, I feel for him. Yeah, like, I, I can't imagine what growing up has been like for him. Oof. Yeah. Seems like a good dude though. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd like to see who he voted for, you know, but <laughs> yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I like the detail about, and I think this also speaks to like a slightly higher quality of police work at here. The detail about when the guy pulled out, he turned left instead of turning right. And they were like, well, he's a local then. If he yeah. wasn't, he would have turned right because the highway is right there and you're going to want to get away from here. But if you know the area and you know somewhere you can go to commit this crime, then you're going to turn left and head back into town. And that's where the idea of an Amber Alert system starts like getting in people's heads that if they could have just been like, hey, there's a black truck driving through town that's got a kidnapped girl in it. Keep your eyes peeled. Yeah, that probably could have helped in a yeah. situation like this. Instead, now they're just looking for a black truck somewhere in Texas, which I mean, how many can there be? You I don't know? know, what, like six? Yeah, probably six, seven, something like that. Count, yeah. them, count them on a couple hands. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you think about the documentary crew's decision to keep filming? So, OK, this is. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing is that they really gloss over that they really it's just one person saying yeah so then we decided ah, we might as well keep shooting which is like 
I really feel like that was a bigger conversation that we're there that it probably gets uncomfortable. It's probably one of those things where like everyone they interviewed about it, well, at least the producer was probably like, yeah, we had this conversation. We brought up this ethical concern and this, this dilemma. And, you know, are we, what do we, what are, what are we, what do we feel comfortable with? And I feel like it probably made the makers of this documentary feel like, oh gosh, <laughs> what are we doing? You know? So I feel like they maybe want to just, let's get that out of the way. Yeah. Because they interview the woman who was making the welfare documentary extensively throughout. And she mentions that obviously they spent a long, long time after like kind of going back and forth as to whether they should ever release this footage because the welfare documentary was done when the abduction happened. So they had that to struggle with. Are we still going to release the documentary, which they end up not doing? But also, well, now do we keep filming? And she... One says they struggled for a long time over whether to release this, but also at one point, and I think you're right, they sort of gloss over it. She just goes, and so now it was just a true crime documentary. Yeah. And it's like, did you ask if everyone wanted that to be the case or did you just decide that was now the case? Because I don't think you leave it in the hands of the family to be like, hey, I know you've been filming us for five months, but will you get the fuck out of here? And they did not get the fuck out of there. And it makes for some devastating television later on in this documentary. Yeah, and it's hard. I got to say, they probably have an agreement with everybody. They obviously do because they use this footage in the thing and Donna's all over this thing. So they would have had to had a conversation that probably got tense and there might have even been some get that fucking camera out of my face kind of stuff. Yeah, that they probably just agreed, look, you know, whatever you want us to show, we'll show. But in the moment, it's like, I guess we're going to shoot everything. It does not to diminish it, but it, you know, now whenever you watch a found footage horror movie, it's like, well, I can buy that they're going to keep filming because this crew kept filming through this thing. Uh, And also, yeah, it's weird. It's kind of cold to be like, well, now it was a true crime documentary. It's like, yeah, it feels a, a little ghoulish. Yeah. But on the bright side, because they were filming at the time, they had all this footage of this kid. So they basically put together a sizzle reel and send it out to the media. So there was that. They at least were able to like rally the community around this kid in a very tangible way. Yeah, the attention to that is really good. That idea of like, well, we don't just have this black and white photo or this school photo from earlier last year like we have footage up to the moment that we can use to like yeah i mean it's it's helpful it's they're lucky they had i mean it turned out to whatever and that we'll we'll get into this part a little later but the woman who ends up proposing the idea of the amber alert that's exactly what she said she was like i don't watch the news that much and like if i'm just driving past a flat image of a kid who's been abducted it's not gonna really register but when you have all of this video of this kid being a real kid like it registers way harder and it was seeing that that got her so invested in it so january 17th 1996 day five of the abduction Amber's body is found in a creek behind an apartment complex in Arlington, not far from where she was abducted. You know, I mentioned the police eliminating people pretty quickly in this case. The guy who finds her body, I feel like, does not get off quite as easy because they said they eliminated him after he took a polygraph. Yeah. It's like, ugh. why did he have to take a polygraph? <laughs> like, like it, it, this guy, like, just... Seeing the brief TV interview with the guy who found her, there's no reason to assume he had anything to do with this shit. And I I don't understand. I don't get that idea. I'm sure it's happened a time or two in murders. But this idea that someone would murder this girl and then immediately run to their neighbors and be like, I found the body. Well, yeah, and especially the day five. But I also think that at like, this point, like, it's such a frenzy. That it's like, we got to cut, we got to look at everyone and everything. And so when I mentioned that their decision to keep filming makes for some pretty harrowing television, this is the part I'm 
talking about because there's this delay between when the body is found and when the body is positively identified as being Amber Hagerman. And it's, I think, about a day, something like that. Yeah. But that documentary crew has cameras in that family's faces the whole time. They're just sitting there filming, watching this family watch an endless loop of news reports about a body being found and just waiting to hear positively that it is their kid. And the fact that, again, it's part of that frenzy of it being a real-time thing, of it being so immediate and following it every step of the way, not just with the documentary, but with the community, with the news media. You know, they have that that woman who's the victim's the victim's assistance like coordinator. Victim coordinator or something. Yeah, yeah. I really liked that. And I liked her and the fact that it included her and her relationship with the family and, and what she was trying to do right up to that moment where the cop calls her and is like, it's been identified. You have five minutes to tell the family before the news, before we tell the news. Yeah. And it's like a race against that to be the first like like it's just it's like i feel like it's all unprecedented like nobody in this situation understands exactly how to do it or what the rules are so it creates this this chaos yeah i think it was unprecedented and i think that leads into the next thing i want to talk about because in terms of the case The documentary goes into more of the details about what's happened with the case over the years. But spoiler alert, it's not solved. The the case is still unsolved. They don't know what happened to Amber Hagerman. If you want, like, the details of what was done to her, you can watch the documentary. I don't feel like going through that part. Yeah, there is a moment that feels jarring when they when they bring up part of that. Like not to get into it, but there's this whole thing where there's this music <laughs> that's super sentimental music about uh, you know, the funeral and then the cop describing something and it's like that was jarring. I didn't uh. Yeah. But I do I do I am with you that they didn't include the moment that the family was told. They kind of oh. stayed back at the funeral. Like there yeah, I, are, I skip. Yeah, I skipped that in the notes. I was the the. I think it was the victim coordinator mentions the scream that yeah. the mom let out, and you know that's on camera. And yeah, I was. I'm like, very glad they didn't. Yeah, show I'm that. glad they didn't show that. That's the respectful thing to do. Granted, they show like the immediate aftermath. And it's also heartbreaking. But yeah, I'm glad they left that part out. But yeah, in terms of the case itself, it kind of ends there. Yeah. Like they talk to some cops who've been trying to follow up on it over the years and whatnot. And you can see all that in the documentary. But yeah, let's talk about the Amber Alert system. Because this, speaking of it being unprecedented, like obviously not in terms of the the carnage or the scope of the crime, but this ends up being kind of a 9-11 moment for the United States in that in response to this incident, there were some pretty significant and sometimes highly controversial laws that were passed in response to this murder. And in the case of one of them, I didn't put it in the notes, but one of the laws that was passed in response to this has been updated as of 2022 to like bring back mandatory minimum sentencing and shit like that. So talk about a crime that had ripple effects. This is, this is definitely one of them. And the biggest and most obvious, actually, I don't know if this is the biggest given the, the thing that they leave out that this led to, but I mean, the obvious one is the Amber Alert system. Yeah. And in this documentary, they they talk to the woman who came up with the idea, and she's just a woman. She's just a random woman who, her, her name's Deanna Simone, and she saw the Amber story on the news and called a local radio station. It was like, hey, th- in situations like that, there should be a way where you, like all the local radio stations, get the information first. And then you can like immediately tell the public to be watching for a black truck with a kidnapped yeah. child in it. And that's how it started. Like there's obviously like more. Yeah, there's a little more to it, but yeah, yeah. 
But that's the basic of, and I like that because it's like you know, it's it's the light side of the citizen sleuth. You know, it's right. the like the proactive side of that instinct. And they actually interview the first person who was ever saved as a result of the Amber Alert system. They have the nine one one call, and it's fucking fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I thought all of that was really neat. Oh, another thing I don't think I put in the notes that for some reason this part just jarred my memory. How about that woman who came forward and was like, oh, the false lead. Yeah, she comes forward and says, oh, well, I saw someone driving away in a black truck and a girl in the back banging on the window like she wanted to be saved. And then it comes out that that woman was lying and she said she just did it to give the mom hope. Yeah. It's like you should be fucking executed. You know, I don't know if I agree with that. Uh I cuz that's what the cops wanted to do. Yeah, but... I mean, I'm I'm being a little hyperbolic. She shouldn't yeah. be executed, but <laughs> she shouldn't be literally executed. Yeah, obviously no. not, but there should it's... be some ramifications for shit like that. Well, it's one of those things where it's like that's this this person is unstable and clearly like has this parasocial relationship. It's it, I think it ties into conversations about celebrity and, yeah, you know, true. get it like that whole thing where people have to make something about them. And it's one of those things that's that comes from an insecurity or it comes from a, uh, um, you know, whatever codependency issues. It's really but I thought that was fascinating. And what I what I really thought was fascinating was the I couldn't tell if it was I don't remember if it was one of the cops or the producer of the doc. Somebody was like, I like it's I get that it's wrong and that it it's a waste of our time and it's fucked up, but like I kind of get where she was coming from. Somebody's I can't remember exactly who it was, but somebody said that. And I was like, well, that's fascinating. Like, that's yeah. a fascinating conversation to have. And it's one of the things where if this were episodic, that would be actually an interesting episode to talk about. Yes. That, to go to branch off from it more so, obviously, than the like false leads of the dad and his friend. But there's that one cop who is like, I wanted to throw the book at her or whatever. And it sounds to me like he's coming very much from a place of like, well, she wasted our time. And it's like, all right, dad, settle down. Yeah. But also, if you're like the lead investigator on this, you don't want your time wasted. That, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Because I think and she did that before the body was found. She did it also. before the body was found. But there's a lot of. I guess not that it matters, but at that point, there probably wasn't any changing what happened. Yeah. That, again, not that that really matters, but yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm of two minds about that false lead, but I just thought it was an interesting thing that I would have liked to have seen, you know, maybe not here, but the implications of that. Like, I'm wondering if there's someone out there that does a study, yeah. possibly, or if there's a book on like people who call in false leads on stuff like this, uh, genuinely thinking they're helping, which is... Yeah, it's wild. So one thing that I would agree they could have invested a little more time in that they really, really, really gloss over are the laws that were passed in response to this. For one thing, I mean, there is some serious Bill Clinton erasure happening in this documentary <laughs> because at one point they cut to the family meeting with George Bush in 2003 at the uh, White House. Yeah. And they're like, it really led to some big changes. Case in point, they installed an Amber Alert coordinator at the Department of Justice. And it's like, yeah, that's a big step. But what they're leaving out is the Amber Hagerman Child Protection Act, which was signed by Bill Clinton in 1996, established the National Sex Offender Registry. Like, how do you leave that out yeah. of this documentary? Yeah, that's weird. Like, that's such... I honestly, when I went and started researching all the other stuff around this, I was like, it's got to be because of Bill Clinton. Now I want to see how this documentary votes. <laughs> exactly. That's fucked up, yeah. Like, that's such a huge thing. Like, I assume... Like, I guess I never knew where the National Sex Offender Registry came from. I just found that really interesting that they left all of that completely out and they just jumped to George Bush signing the Protect Act of 2003. 
which it's not even named after her. The one Clinton signed yeah, was named after her. Yeah. Very weird. So now let's go yeah. ahead. No, it's also not even really about her that much. I mean, it, yeah, it is, but it's also not. Yeah. Like, I can see the logic because yeah. this was clearly a crime that was motivated by sex, probably. And it would have been good to have a rundown of convicted sex offenders in the area at the time it happened. That probably would have been a good. And they did say they talked to a bunch of, you know, pedophiles and things who lived in the area. But that would have just been people they knew from having local arrest records and shit. If someone moved to town, yeah. they wouldn't so much know it. So now let's talk about the Protect Act. It did some good things. It established a national Amber Alert coordinator at the Department of Justice. I don't know what that means. I mean, I know what that means, but I assume it's good. Sounds good. This is interesting. It eliminated waiting periods for law enforcement to investigate the disappearances of 18 to 21-year-olds, a.k.a. Suzanne's Law, which is named after Suzanne Lyle, a 19-year-old college student who was murdered. So that's... I feel like a step in the right direction. If your 19-year-old goes missing and you go to the police, they, in theory, can't be like, oh, she's an adult. Come yeah. back in 24 hours. Yeah. It imposed harsher penalties, including up to 30 years in prison, for U.S. citizens who travel abroad to engage in sex acts with children. I'm all for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because in reading it further, it seems like previously... If you did that, you were subject to the laws of where you traveled to. But when you came back here, it was fine. So I'm all for that part. But also, this is a weird law that yeah. resulted in some pretty strange arrests, mostly due to a bunch of provisions about computer-generated and hand-drawn child porn. I was going to read both of these passages, but I'm not. They're very yeah. long. Yeah. But what ended up happening is people got arrested for like anime and manga under this law. And like there's levels to that. Case in point, yeah. the, the first guy, first person ever convicted under these laws, a Virginia man named Dwight Worley. And I'm cutting that guy a break by not pronouncing it. Horley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. Dwight Horley. Oh, gosh. There it is. He was convicted on 19 counts of knowingly receiving child porn after he used computers at the Virginia Employment Commission to download, quote, Japanese anime style cartoons of children engaged in explicit sexual conduct with adults. And before you get too up in arms, please know he was previously arrested for receiving actual child porn depicting actual kids yeah so he's not innocent this isn't like when the oklahoma sheriff's department that that sheriff's department in oklahoma was like literally ejecting copies of the tin drum from people's vcrs to destroy them uh <laughs> this is like no this guy probably is a he's a bad dude so yeah i'm, I'm sure even <laughs> taking into account that they are anime i bet those pictures aren't cute yeah no, it's nothing, not. Nothing you'd wear on a fucking sweatshirt. That's for sure. There's also Christopher Handley. He is a, quote, prolific collector of manga. He was arrested and charged and eventually pled guilty to Protect Act related charges after ordering seven graphic novels from Japan. And in his case, he was the first person charged under the Protect Act solely for possessing art that the government deemed obscene. And there's when I didn't read that passage from the law, one of the things that unintentionally forced me to gloss over is the Miller test, which yeah. there is a test the government uses to determine if something is obscene or not. And obscenity is not considered protected speech. So in this case, this guy bought these seven books and the government decided that is actually child porn, even though, again, there's no pictures of kids. There's just drawings of animated kids, which I'm not here to defend seeking shit like that out. No. Like that's still that's still highly, highly problematic. And I like wouldn't want that dude in my life. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> He's not going to be the guy that you're like, oh, so my buddy Chris, he's 
fine, but you know, you're not like he's just, not he's not coming to any parties I'm at. Just when we walk in his house, don't focus on the walls. Don't look at his bookshelf. Yeah. How about that? And in this case, you know the government was on shaky ground when they made this arrest because they agreed to a plea deal. Yeah. He was facing 20 years in prison and ended up getting six months in prison, five years probation. And his. We just had to get rid of his comics. <laughs> his, his comic book collection was seized yeah. by the police. And the reason the feds agreed to that is because they knew his lawyers were going to challenge this on constitutional grounds. Yeah. Yeah. Because. The stuff he was in possession of didn't technically fall outside the boundaries of the Miller test. It's just that when this law was passed, they slipped a thing in that said, oh, also, in some cases, if it's super bad, then the Miller test doesn't have to apply. And it's like, I get that tweak, but also Wait. these seven Japanese comic books fell that far. Wait, so you said super – if it's super bad. So like the movie Super Bad yeah. is a yeah, violation? Super bad is not okay. protected speech. I don't think people right. realize that. But okay. Michael you have Sarah, the DVD. <laughs> yeah, the feds are going to crack down on Michael Sarah at any moment. Yeah. Jonah Hill is preparing a constitutional case. Yeah. Also, as part of his plea deal, Handley was not required to register – as a sex offender, which yeah. I think also speaks to the strength or lack thereof of the case the government had against him. Yeah. There was also a weird trademark lawsuit that I, I feel like it's worth mentioning just because the documentary didn't. Bruce Seibert, who was a friend of the Hagerman family, it seems like he was like the mouthpiece, which is a thing you see in cases like this where the family, like not everyone's a public speaker. Like we can't all get up in front of the media and sound really cool and eloquent. So Bruce Seibert, who was a friend of the Hagermans, his daughter was really close with Amber. He ends up being like the mouthpiece for this family when they end up going out and like lobbying for stricter uh, sex crime laws and things mm -hmm. of the like. And there's not a lot of information out there about it anymore probably because it's not that interesting. But at some point, a dispute happens between Bruce Seibert <laughs> so and the weird. National Center for Missing and Exploited Children over their use of the trademark Amber Alert. That's so fucking weird. It's weird. And it's like, so was this guy profiting off of it? Right. He had to like, be, right. Yeah. But actually, I don't necessarily want to paint him into this corner because I did see a thing that said his problem was the way they were implementing it wasn't as efficient as it could be. And it was potentially costing and kids. And sometimes you have lives. to threaten on, you know, it's, it's like when they got Capone on taxes, yeah. you know, it's a, it's like, I got to do this or threaten this lawsuit so that you will listen to me on this thing. I, yeah, it's a leverage. It's a leverage issue probably to get them to act better or or fix their system. I can understand that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And that's probably why a lot of info about it has fallen by the wayside. That's that's one of the biggest misconceptions about the internet. People are always like, put it on the internet, it's there forever. Motherfucker, it's there as long as they keep paying that GoDaddy subscription. Yeah. Beyond that, shit disappears. Including shit is gone. Including Bruce Seibert's website about how he owned the trademark to Amber Alert. Gone. So I'm sure it ended fine. Or and not. Who knows? Or not. Yeah. And now let's talk about this one, one last thing. There's another lawsuit out there. And this feels like facts. Like, I, I can see how this would be the case. A Texas couple is suing Apple, alleging that their 12-year-old son suffered permanent hearing loss after an Amber Alert produced an ear-shattering sound while he was wearing an, a pair of AirPods. I can absolutely see that happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't... I'm just trying to figure out how to word this so that I'm not... Like, it's... <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's... This is... We're in some heavy subject territory here, but it's... There's kind of like a monkey's paw narrative quality here to an Amber Alert really injuring a child. Um, there's like a, a Black Mirror kind of Twilight zone <laughs> sort of weirdness to it. But um, yeah, I'm all for anyone suing uh, major 
corporations or institutions of uh, that have lots of money and power for any reason. Yeah, go ahead and sue them. Fuck them. Sure. Uh, I mean, maybe not so much. Not like people who are like, if you're like trying to sue Disney because Marvel yeah. movies are making your kid gay. Yeah, like not uh, in the Peter Thiel gawker way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and even then, like, who knows? Maybe that's what, you know, maybe that's what we need is shit like that happening <laughs> so that the liberals will choose a fucking side. But, maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm all, I, I absolutely believe that this happened. I absolutely believe the, the complaints of this family. Well, those Amber Alerts are loud as shit. Yeah. And yeah. I, I get it, but also I get how this could happen. And I'm assuming this family has medical documentation of this. Like, yeah, according like what they claim is the sound of this alert tore the kid's eardrum, also damaged his cochlea and caused significant injuries to his hearing. He suffers from bouts of dizziness, vertigo and nausea. And that's two years later, by the way, and will have to wear a hearing aid for the rest of his life. Like, I'm assuming they have documentation of all of that. And like, yeah, those alerts are fucking loud. Yeah, and also, it's the kind of thing where it's like, you need to be testing this shit, you know? Yeah. You need to test how an Amber Alert, somebody on your team, your Apple, you have everyone working for you. Uh, get a department to test this shit before you put something on the market. Like, it's that simple. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It is interesting, an Amber Alert. <laughs> injuring a child yeah that's that's a crazy twist careful that's a careful what you wish for scenario yeah have you ever seen there's like an internet comedy video about amber alerts and it's called Mm. something like what people expect is going to happen when they receive an amber alert and it's this guy playing video games and he gets an amber alert and just immediately jumps up and runs outside and everyone else in the neighborhood (laughs) pouring out of their homes and it's funny shit it's very good (laughs) yeah well that's the thing is it is kind of like one of an amber alert and the amber alert system it's one of those uh, you know developments that sort of um it it illustrates a possibly naive optimism about yeah the human animal you know uh it really it's one of those things where it's like yeah this is great if we were actually, you know, a species that valued community anymore or being proactive or fixing problems, but we're not that. It's, I mean, it has saved some lives. Yeah, no, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to be like, fuck the Amber Alert. What good does it do? (laughs) Like, it's only, it is, it's, it's only as good as the intentions and the spirit of the people that are invested in it. And I think that in that case, yeah, all right. It saved people, and that's great. And I, I do think stuff like this is important. But yeah. it also, like, again, in this documentary, I kept seeing moments of, like, you know, the cops being like, I want to punish this guy, or I thought it was going to be this guy, or, you know, even the situation where that started the whole thing, where Donna had to get out of her relationship, the cops were like, I mean, they, they gave her a wake-up call, but it was one of those things of, like, they're not going to help you. You've got to help yourself. You've got yeah. to get out of here and do this yourself. And yeah, yeah. one of the criticisms I would have of this and it's I mean, it's barely a criticism because you have to expect this from a true crime documentary. But the documentary film crew ends up being interviewed by the police. And there's this whole middle section of the documentary where they're really hitting on how important it is to just tell the police everything, you know, and answer all their questions in a sit just so they can move on. And I don't know, I'm. I will always be a lawyer up guy like in this situation like that dad, especially the friend with the truck. I like fucking lawyer up. But then if if either of them did that, that's where that investigation would have gone forever. They would have just focused on those two. Well, you even had that cop that was like, you know, it's it's one thing as a document. I'm glad that they included a lot of stuff here that was that would seem basic, I think, to most people when they were talking about, oh, we we, this guy was a suspect, but we cleared him. This guy was a suspect, but we cleared him. Right. This guy wasn't a suspect, but we looked into it and we cleared him anyway. Like that's basic procedure stuff. It's like one oh one. Like this is how cops work. This is how investigations work. But I do love when they included the cop saying that he thought that the documentary had caused someone to do this. That like yes. it made her a celebrity, so somebody like 
targeted her and then immediately being like, oh, but then I found out that it hadn't aired yet. Because it really does speak to like where the mind of these investigators go, like where it's going when there aren't walls to put up there to say, nope, don't go down this road. It's silly. Yeah. And I did appreciate that. That. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think we just need documentary film crews following all poor families. Yeah. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's almost like to keep them safe from the police. Well, because the whole fucking point of the original doc was like, we need to we need to put these working poor women on screen so that people will empathize with them and fucking vote correctly. Like it's and yeah. it's it's just more of that of like at every step of the way it's like oh the, the you're vulnerable you're always vulnerable and because nobody's looking at you yeah and ugh, goddamn cops man cops man cops man yeah that uh, uh, that at the end of the day is the thing i i think really made me appreciate this documentary is that the police work wasn't as sloppy as it normally is in a true crime documentary yeah, and I argue that it's just because they weren't allowed to be. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> because there was too much I holding them accountable. Two and two together in that case, but I think you're probably right. They couldn't, like, beat Richard with a rubber hose for <laughs> six hours behind closed yeah. doors. Yeah, they couldn't just perp walk him in front of the news and be like, are you kidding me? Look at this guy. Of course he did it. All right, case closed. Let's get beers. <laughs> yeah, and that, that happens a lot. Yeah. A whole lot, but... I, th- I think we've made it to the end. Andy, thank you so much for sitting in on the pod. I appreciate it. Of course. Uh, I do think it's it was bound to happen because I don't know if I ever told you this, but somebody reviewed Ghoul School in the Apple Podcasts uh, review field. Oh, yeah. They reviewed Ghoul School with uh, the title Pretty Scary, and the review is just the word boo. So I I was like, I don't know if someone thinks that this is the the page for the Pretty Scary podcast or if somebody is hinting at a crossover or if they want me on. But this is the payoff. Thank you, reviewer that said Pretty Scary Boo. I got to say Pretty Scary Boo on Pretty Scary Boo. You were also on the Curse of the Billy Goat episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's where the review came from, is they heard me on that one. <laughs> Could be. Andy, speaking of that, what do you what do you got to plug before we get out of here? Well, obviously, you don't even like this band. You yes. should be listening to that. Uh, Look Good for the Boys is currently on a hiatus uh, between seasons, but we'll be back in the summer. And there are, I say this every time I'm on an Unpop show now, there's more Ghoul School coming. I promised I'm working on it. Very nice. Um, I am doing comedy this Friday at Mint on Card, which is Jeff's show at Blast from the Past in Burbank. So come tell me, come see me tell jokes for the second time since COVID. First time since I had surgery on my face. Um, and I think that's it for right now. Let's get the fuck out of here. Andy, say goodbye. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. <laughs>